are actually reflected in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. How there are shadows of those events found all throughout the Bible. Last week we looked at the healing of the cross. This week we're going to look at the forgiveness of the cross. Now, um, it's been recognized for some years now by medical experts from Harvard to Johns Hopkins uh, of the health effects that come from the practice of forgiving, forgiving people. And uh, key health effects. This, this is a quote from uh, Johns Hopkins. Studies have found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep, reducing pain, blood pressure, and levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. All of that from learning to forgive people. Now, if all of those benefits come from forgiving people, imagine what the benefits are if we could understand we were forgiven. Now, you don't find much research on that. I think part of the reason might be we don't really think we need to be forgiven. But I also think it's not many people can testify that they have lived forgiven lives. It seems like the best that we can muster up, the best the world can give us, the best that the culture can give us is lives that basically are all about being nagged by leftover guilt and trying to measure up. That's the best the world can offer us. Instead, we find something else here. In this graphic, gory ritual that was practiced in Israel, we find the promise of a forgiveness that is true and complete and real. Now, as we went through all those, that passage, you saw all those, you know, meticulous directions. One thing it reminds us that we can only find forgiveness God's way. There's a place for forgiving yourself, but that's not going to get you where you need to be. And so what does God prescribe for us? What does he give us? Well, that's what I want to look at. And I want to look at three different angles of it. The cost of forgiveness, the need of forgiveness, and the effectiveness of the forgiveness that God grants to us. So let's look at those three things. First of all, the cost of forgiveness. Now, as modern people hearing that scripture read, I think the natural impulse is this is primitive, offensive, and cruel. Uh... A dreadful object lesson. Well, it was meant to. It's meant to shock you and I into the reality, into the sobriety of what forgiveness costs. And on the flip side, the consequence of sin, of moral evil, of the toll that it takes. And we don't lack for examples of that, do we? I mean, literally, we have examples of the way sin sheds blood, an unjust war in Ukraine. Last weekend reported that there were uh, nine mass shootings. Now, mass shootings means more than four people shot. In one weekend, nine. 
or the day in and day out, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, we don't lack examples of how sin can literally damage people's bodies and even take their lives. But then there's also emotional wounds, right? Gossip, criticism, character attacks. Senator Ben Sass this week um, during the confirmation hearings said, uh, these confirmation hearings for both parties have too often been a staging ground of nasty, evidence-free personal attacks. And yes, it's disheartening watching it, right? But we're called not to just be disheartened, we're called to be self-reflective and humble. Because how many of us, if we looked at the conversations that took place in our office culture, in our own kitchens, in our own hearts and minds, would be under a similar indictment. The emotional wounds that go deeply into people's lives, that you can testify about your own life. And these sins cost people dearly. This graphic, gory object lesson shocks us into the idea that sin cost people. You know, I have found this personally, and I think it's true. We often judge the seriousness and severity of our sins by its, their perceived effects on someone. So if we perceive the effects, then we see it. But if we don't, we just go on and think, well, it's no big deal. Until one day, the long-suffering person... <laughs> the person that has been wounded over and over finally breaks or they finally leave. And at that point, you're realizing, what have I done? What is the damage that I've done? Sin costs people dearly. And if you've chosen to forgive someone, you know it does. Because if you've had to forgive someone of um, a significant wound or sin against yourself, what you essentially said was, I will eat this cost. I will pay this cost myself. And this is what you find the Lord proclaiming through this animal sacrifice. God proclaiming, I will take this cost upon another. An innocent one, an innocent one will bear the cost of a guilty one. That's what's displayed before us here. One innocent who is blameless, remember the bull had to be blameless, will bear the wrong of another. And of course, this is just a shadow because we find as we move to the Old Testament that Jesus Christ's death is talked about in terms of a sacrifice, right? He's even, they even go so far to say he's a lamb of God who will be sacrificed for the sins of you and I. So in the gospel, the high priest himself, the high priest himself supplies the sacrifice with his own life. With his own lifeblood. Uh, John Piper, pastor and theologian, has said, um, we grasp the depth 
of people's love for us a couple different ways. One is by the benefits that it gets us. Another is by the freeness of the way it's given to us. But another one is the cost, right? The cost it takes. And you see all of this in the Christian gospel, the great benefits of the death of Jesus Christ, whereby people can be forgiven and righteous and accepted into God and not just put on the sidelines, but brought into the game. Or the, or the freeness, maybe this is the thing that moves you, just the way that God freely loves people. Where he chooses to lavish his love. And when we ask him, why, Lord, why? He says, cause, cause. The reason isn't in us. This unconditional love. And then in the sacrifice of the father, of the only beloved son, and Christ pouring out his lifeblood like a slaughtered lamb for those that receive and believe in him. So, the cost of forgiveness is the first thing we have to understand. I, um, you know, worship is an interesting thing. C.S. Lewis has said that uh, coming to worship week in and week out is sort of like digging waterless channels. You know? I mean, there's some weeks where maybe you come here and the blessing just overflows to you. There's other times you come in and you feel like, man, I, I don't feel like I had a drop, God. <laughs> right? And as we come through communion, that's another part of it. And I, like you, every time I come through communion, I pray, Lord, would you meet me? Would you open my eyes? And, I, you know, sometimes I get a, a nice feeling. Sometimes I, but, but a couple weeks ago, I don't know what it was. I was passing, I was taking the bread and I was passing the wine and I looked into the deep redness of it and I just thought of the blood of Christ that was spilled for me. It, it was his blood in my sight poured out. And you might say, well, you know, what's the deal with this Christians and their fascination with blood? It's symbolic. It's the idea of life-giving. God pouring himself out. And it's stuck with me now for a couple weeks. The cost. But also the need of forgiveness, number two. For big sinners and for little sins. Um, now the Lord in this passage... Notice what he's doing. He's holding the highest office in the land accountable. The high priest. Now, and consider how different this is in the world. Oftentimes, it's the person that has the authority and the power that has the easiest way not to be held accountable. They have the relationships. They can apply pressure. They can play the game. They can do what they need to do not to be held accountable. But here God, before the eyes of Israel, wants to know, I will hold those in authority and great power accountable. No one will slip my attention. In the, and, you, and you match the authority with the type of sacrifice. The bull was the most expensive sacrifice given. 
So he calls the high priest, not just to bring a little something. I want you to come and bring the best sacrifice you can publicly. If you sin, that's what's required of you. Now, the reason it doesn't work that way in the world, because typically what happens is the more and more we rise in authority and power, the more it feeds not our humility, but our self-righteousness and our pride. Now, ironically, you find in Jesus Christ, he has all the authority and power, but the result, he's gentle and lowly. And of course, there's a word for you and I. Maybe you're a manager here. All of us have some authority. You're a parent, you're a pastor, you're a teacher. And how important it is that as your authority rises, that your need for forgiveness rises. So important that as your responsibility rises, your need rises. And the knowledge you know that God, as he gives you more authority, will hold you accountable for it. Some of the reason is the trickle-down effect, because what leaders do affect people. He talks about guilt upon the people. Now, individualistic Westerners, we scratch our head and go, I don't understand this, plus it doesn't seem fair. This idea of guilt that would spread. But we all understand that people's sin does affect us. We all understand that there are uh, communal effects of sin. None of us lives unto ourselves. That's why we do confessions of sin that are corporate and by individuals. And you even see it in the way that the priest sprinkles blood in the holy place because we take our sin with us, don't we? We carry it with us into relationships, in the way we think about our vocations, in the way we do life. It comes with us. And so, we see it as big sinners, as people grow into authority, but we also see it in quote-unquote little sins. Because actually, this passage is about unintentional sins. Unintentional sins. Now, our legal system, right, talks about premeditated crimes and those that are not, crimes of passion, and we distinguish there's a difference between the two. Right? We acknowledge there's different levels of guilt involved. And maybe we borrow this from the Bible. The Bible has always had this idea of high-handed sins, sins that are intentional and defiant and blasphemous, versus sins that happen out of ignorance or inattention. You know, sort of like when you're you know, uh, in your car and you're having a great conversation and you realize you're going 80. Right? You get pulled over. It, it was inattention. It wasn't like... I, am one, I want to break the speed limit today, right? It wasn't that. It was like, you say, well, what is the big deal? But you know something? Actually, little sins can reveal a lot because the casual nature of which they happen. Uh, now, it's the uh, 50th anniversary of the movie The Godfather. And... Um, you know, there's been so much analysis on this movie, and if you like this movie, I promise you I'm not bringing you any new insights. Um, but I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, of the main character, Michael, the son. And uh, I don't think this is going to ruin the story for you, but come on. 
50 years. But, you know, the family is into organized crime. And Michael is the younger son. He's kind of the favorite son. But, you know, he doesn't want to go that way. He's upstanding. He's a Marine. He wants to go into politics. He comes out into the family. But that changes, of course. And how does it change? It's just a little thing. A little thing. His dad gets threatened, his dad gets shot, and he wants to help. He wants to protect his dad. Seems to be a harmless thing, right? A good thing. But you know, actually, your desire to help and your desire to protect can actually become too important to you. And it does for him. It's just a little thing. Inattention. You see this with Moses, how both of these things come together. Uh, Some of you may know that Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land. God takes him on a virtual tour, but he isn't allowed to go in. Why does that happen? And as a pastor, I regularly think about this. Moses one day loses it with Israel. And did he have good reason to? I mean, come on. It's been 40 years in the desert. They haven't been a picnic. You can just read a little bit and you're like, and what happens? He gets mad. God was going to perform a miracle. He's going to hit the rock with the staff. Water's going to come out. And he gets mad and he's just like, you people, bang, bang. It's a little thing. It's just another hit. The Lord says, you're not going to go into the promised land. Because I gave you authority And you believe that you have right to condemn my people and judge my people. And also that rock represents my son who is to come and he will not be struck twice. He'll be struck once. It just seemed like a little thing. And so, you know, it's good for us. We see our need for God's forgiveness in the big things, but you actually see it in the things where you're like, man, for 30 or 40 years, this has escaped my attention. If you choose to walk with God, now we're going to get to the forgiveness because you're probably like, this is really a depressing depiction of the Christian life. 30 or 40 years you walk with God, it's just going to be like sin, 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 sin. But, you know, I've I've drawn this, I wish, you know, if we had it, but... uh, you know this, uh, they still, do they still use greater or less than signs? And, well, yeah, they're on our keyboard, so I'm sure they do. But, you know, if you kind of do one of these things, what happens is as you grow ascending, knowing more about God and his holiness and love, and you grow more and more seeing your sin, the cross of Christ grows with it. It's bigger and it gets bigger. That's where we're headed. So we want it. Pay attention to those little things. You know, I notice one of my little things is, um, this is really embarrassing to say this, but so you're walking along and maybe a couple's having an argument or someone's having a meltdown. And I'm kind of aware of it, but I want to look. I want to look. I want to see what's... How ugly is it? I feel a little bit better. Or maybe just so I can judge a little bit. Right? 
We do that with people's outward appearance. We, all this time, just a little thing. Ugly thing. Ugly thing. And so, are you beginning to see your need? Now let's move to the effectiveness of the forgiveness. I need it. So, as I said at the beginning, is there anything better than just living with nagging guilt and feeling like you try to measure up all the time? As I have surveyed the philosophies that are available to me, the religions available to me, that's what I get. An invitation to say, you'll kind of be rid of your guilt a little bit, and then you're going to measure up for the rest of your life. Is there anything better? There is. First of all, we see it in just the ritual itself. As he sprinkles the tabernacle seven times, seven is, a, is the number of perfection, completeness. The idea being that perfect forgiveness will be given. Complete forgiveness will be given. And then at the end, when the burnt offering, the sacrifice, is totaled. It's totally done away. Nothing left. Completeness we see. And there's two ways that this happens. First of all, perfect substitution. Perfect substitution. Now... If you and I would have been there and God would have done a little director's cut, that's the book of Hebrews, by the way. If you want to understand uh, Israel and its worship, read the book of Hebrews. Study the book of Hebrews. It gives you such insight. But in it, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this about really the scene we're watching. Every priest stands offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. What? Never take away sins. I thought that was the whole point of it. Well, you could insert, ultimately, we'll never take away sins. There was real grace being offered to Israel through that. But anybody knew and everybody knew that the blood of bulls, right, and goats can atone for sin. Why? Because it's not one for one. An animal can't substitute for a human being. And even if you had a sinless human being, how is he going to atone for all the sins even just in this room? He can. He's finite. Psalm 49 puts it this way. Just so we know, we're clear that the Bible never taught that those sacrifices ultimately were going to do anything. Just like whatever spiritual sacrifice you try to make to God Pilgrimages people make, rosary beads, service, works. If you're not a person of faith, it might just be like your nonprofit service. It might be your volunteerism. It might be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in and make a big change. Whatever it is, Psalm 49 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No human being has the morality or the capacity. So stop trying to save yourself. Isn't that good news? Stop trying to save yourself. But the book of Hebrews tells us this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being uh, sanctified. 
It says many things there. It's saying from one sacrifice, he sat down. The priest could never sit down. There were no chairs in the tabernacle because the work was never done. Sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. I'm just into Tuesday of one week. Thousands of years, sacrifice, endless sacrifice. I got to do the sacrifice. Honey, where are you going? You know I got to do the sacrifice this week. Over and over and over and over and over and over. Can you imagine what a shock it was when those sacrifices could cease? Why? For that to happen, you have to have a true sinless human representative, and you have to have one who can bear the burden, a divine one. And this is where you get the wisdom of the Heidelberg Catechism written hundreds of years ago. Listen to this. Two questions, catechism style. Question one, why must a substitute or a mediator be a man or a human being and be perfectly righteous? Answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which is sin should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Number two question, why must he also be perfect why must he also be divine, be God? That he might, by the power of his divinity, Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and that he might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. The perfect God-man enables you and I, through substitution, to have perfect forgiveness, unassailable forgiveness. That's what you and I need. And so this is why Christians would preach Jesus, not because he's their favorite mascot. It's not to say, well, my religion's better. It's the question is, where is a God-man? Where is one who can come and walk in the, in the flesh like you and I and not sin and be faithful to God? Yet who is one that can sustain the burden that falls upon Jesus the physical suffering, as real as it was, you know, was depicting something much darker. The wrath of God, bringing it upon himself, and so nagging guilt can go away, and I can stop trying to measure up. Perfect substitution, but also perfect identification. You see, as the high priest puts his hand on the head of the bull, he's saying, God, would you identify your sacrifice with me? You must identify with Jesus Christ. You must identify and embrace God's mediator, or there is no forgiveness of sins. And when we identify with that, it's not only the sacrifice that occurs in the perfect blood that is spilled, but outside of the city. The gospel teaches that Jesus was crucified outside of the holy city. That was by intention, because the lamb, the scapegoat, could not be crucified within. Sin was taken out and away. As the Psalms would say, you've taken our sin as far as the east is from the west. Or to put it in Godfather style, it's sleeping with the fishes. Sin is down low. It's dead. 
It's away from me. Do you know the moment you trust in God's sacrifice, your sin has been totaled? It's been burned. There's nothing left. It's ashes. Past, present, and future. Don't ask me how God works out the time thing. He's above time, but he does. It's gone. And the task for you and I as a Christian is, is the hard work of believing it as we're struggling. That's what it is. But don't, let's not forsake the believing, the imperfection of the believing with the objectivity of the perfection that was accomplished. Let's not say that my faith, my ability to believe is the same as the reality that's happened. It'd be better to say, God, my faith is weak, but I know the reality of what you did outside of me 2,000 years ago with your son is done. It is finished. The substitute was given. The reason he rose was because he was sinless and he defeated sin. He has risen. He is seated. And he'll return. But all of this, my friends, sounds very transactional and legal. But it's actually relational. Because if you take the word atonement and break it down, it's at one mint. God does it because he wants to be one with you. He wants to be one with the world that he made. God's all about relationship. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's why the whole thing ends with this great unification. The bride and groom come together in intimacy. All this is done because he wants you. He wants you. And this is, this is the only way that's going to happen because you'll never get close enough to him. You'll be like the shy, the shy bride that runs away because he's so beautiful. He's so glorious, this groom. And you'll get a little bit close and you'll go, no, I can't, I, I got to run away. I mean, we're doing this all the time, right? I want to draw near intimacy and pray to him. Just when I'm close, I'm going to run away. Or just when I want to really believe he loves me that much because the devil is so afraid if you believe that he loves you that much because that is the power for defeating evil and the power for defeating sin. And just when we go, could you love me that much? Oh, you couldn't love me that much. So every week we come here and we try to help each other. We rehearse the love of God and we do it all throughout so that the forgiveness might be ours. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us this? Would you give us this forgiveness? You've given it in our faith. And I pray for anybody here that hasn't received it for the first time, they wouldn't delay anymore. Not one more moment, not one more week of just living a life of carrying burdens or just the foolishness of thinking that we can actually measure up Oh, Lord, let your, your grace fall to the glory of your Son. He deserves it all. In Christ's name, amen.